Good evening, Little Masters, and welcome to episode 141 of the Prancing Pony Podcast, where today, Sean has the cheek to take over an entire episode. Honestly, I don't even know why you showed up today, because I'm not going to let you talk. Seriously. Seriously. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, of course. So, folks, go ahead and pull up a bench in the common room, and we'll be right there. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who insisted I put in a green stone. That just sounds strange. (laughs) Alan Sisto, it does. Well, I think it's important, but the whole thing is rather over your head, Sean. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it is. (laughs) This entire episode is going to be over our heads because it's in the sky. Oh, no, you you went there. Oh, no, no, actually, I don't. I don't. You pitched it to me like that. What was I supposed to do? (laughs) Not swing? Swing and a miss, but at least I swung. There you go. But on that horrible note, why don't we go ahead and start stargazing (laughs) right away with another... Philology Fair. Now, I know you've been looking forward to this one. (laughs) Oh, yes, I have. Yes, (laughs) I have. Alan, remember the story about the time C.S. Lewis said to Tolkien, there is too little of what we really like in stories. I'm afraid Mm -hmm. we shall have to try and write some ourselves. I do. Of course I do. Well, there's too little of what I really like in podcasts, so I'm doing (laughs) my part to fix that today. (laughs) Okay. This segment is all about stuff Sean likes. Okay, I guess I'll just step out of the booth then. (laughs) No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. But I I should probably explain myself. Folks, this Philology Fair segment is going to explore the etymology of the name Arendelle. Oh, man, I get the feeling you've been waiting a very long time to say those words. (laughs) You know, I think it might be the fourth greatest sentence I've ever said. Yeah, fourth. Right behind, I do. It's a boy. It's a girl. Oh, maybe. Okay. And then it's right it's well right said. there. It's really close. Yeah. Right up there. Well, All you right. know, my family might be listening, so you know. <laughs> and you wouldn't want them to think they're behind A or Endel. Even right. If they of are. course not. Of course. No, no, they're certainly not. They're <laughs> certainly not. So anyway, before I get myself in trouble, here we go. Yeah. All right. So if you've read the Silmarillion, you know that Arendel is glossed in the index as lover of the sea. We've talked about that before. Right. The appendix on elements in Quenya and Cinder in names explains the two elements as Quenya AR, meaning C, and Indil, a common personal name suffix that implies devotion, disinterested love. But if you've ever listened to this show before, you know it's not that simple, right? Mm-hmm. I think you all know by now that this was a case of Tolkien basically reverse engineering a name that he found in an old English poem. Right. The name of the poem is, uh, is Christ One or Christ One uh, mm-hmm. in Old English. And it was formerly attributed to the Anglo-Saxon poet Cunewulf, but is generally considered these days to be the work of some other anonymous poet from the late 8th or early 9th century. So a while back. A a good while back, yeah. A a few days ago. This wasn't last week. (laughs) A few years ago, let's say that. Okay. All right. Uh, The lines of the poem that inspired Tolkien are, say it with me folks at home, Ela Erendel Engle Bertast over Middenyard Monum Sended. Oh, Yeah. We can say that all night long, folks. I know. I love it. And that means, Hail Arendelle, brightest of angels, over Middle-earth sent to men. Reverse engineering indeed. Now, mm-hmm. unlike other examples like, say, Adelante, where Tolkien tried to play coy about the real-world connections, Tolkien freely admitted that this name was inspired by Old English poetry. Yep. Now, it was a 1967 letter, or actually a draft letter, to Mr. Rang, and it's letter 297 in Carpenter's collection. Mm-hmm which is, by the way, full of great word nerdery besides this. Yeah, that's a fun one. It is, especially for you. He <laughs> writes, the most important name in this connection is Aerendil. This name is, in fact, as is obvious, derived from Anglo-Saxon Aerendil. 
by the way, I love that he just says, as is obvious. That's obvious to everyone, isn't it? It's yeah. obvious to everybody. Every Everybody well, knows Anglo-Saxon as well as Tolkien does. Right, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He says, when first studying Anglo-Saxon professionally, 1913, I had done so as a boyish hobby when supposed to be learning Greek and Latin. You know, I'm just going to sidebar again. As a boyish hobby, most of us like play with the Nintendo instead of, I know. I'm supposed to be yeah. learning math and English and I'm playing a video game. He's... He's, he's supposed Latin. to be studying Greek and Latin, and he's studying Anglo-Saxon. Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. And that's yeah. why Tolkien's the author of the century, and we're just a couple podcasters. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> well said, sir. I raise my glass to that. <laughs> exactly. So Tolkien goes on to say, I was struck by the great beauty of this word or name, entirely coherent with the normal style of Anglo-Saxon, but euphonic to a peculiar degree in that pleasing but not delectable language. Also, its form strongly suggests that it is in origin a proper name and not a common noun. Mm -hmm. This is borne out by the obviously related forms in other Germanic languages, from which, amid the confusions and debasements of late traditions, it at least seems certain that it belonged to astronomical myth and was the name of a star or star group. To my mind, the Anglo-Saxon uses seem plainly to indicate that it was a star presaging the dawn, at any rate an English tradition. That is what we now call Venus the morning star, as it may be seen, shining brilliantly in the dawn before the actual rising of the sun. That is, at any rate, how I took it. So let's stop there for a moment, because there are a couple of things in that quote from that letter that I'd like to point out. All right. The first is that Arendel in Tolkien's mythology, is both the morning star and the evening star. You'll see him referred mm. to as mm-hmm. both. Now, that's because both of those so-called stars in the real world are actually the same celestial object. As Tolkien says, it's the planet Venus, and that's actually been known for centuries. Right. When Venus appears in the east before the sunrise, it's traditionally called the morning star. When it appears in the west after sunset, it's traditionally called the evening star. Mm -hmm. And that's why, for example, Tolkien refers to Eärendil as the morning star here in this letter, but he's Eärendil the evening star in one of Tolkien's early poems. And then you get things like Arwen's epithet even star, which is at least Uh, partly a reference uh to Eärendil. Right. But here's the other thing that I want to point out. Tolkien's mention of obviously related forms in other Germanic languages. It is true. There are cognates of the name Eärendil in other Germanic languages. In Mm. fact, there's a whole section devoted to this name in Jacob Grimm's 1835 book, Teutonic Mythology, which is a foundational text in the field of Germanic mythology and philology. And you have that on your bookshelf? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Believe it or not, I actually do. Yeah. Oh, you are kidding me. No, I'm not. An English translation of it. But yeah, yeah, I do have a copy of it. Yeah. Uh, that's mind-blowing. I was going to make fun of you talking about the fact that, oh, yeah, it's in this book that you yeah. don't have, but, but you do. I haven't, I haven't read okay, it. Okay, I look but stupid I now. I look... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Sean. Go ahead. You're welcome. Glad to help. Glad to be there for you. <laughs> It's an easy uh, job. So, so, so I'm not going to go into all the different versions of the name and the character. Uh, mm-hmm. However, fans of Shakespeare might want to dig a little deeper because there is a surprising connection to Hamlet. I'm just going to leave huh. that there for anybody who wants okay. to dig into it. All but right. one of the related forms is an old Norse name, Arvandil, which is mm. in the prose Edda, and it's the name of a character whom Thor meets uh, at, at one point on a trip to Jotunheim, and he actually mm-hmm. rescued him by carrying him in a basket across a frozen river. Okay. Uh, along the way, Arvandil's toe gets frostbitten in the river, so Thor breaks it off and throws it up into the sky, where it became oh. a star. Oh, well, now that's not quite as dignified as the story we're going to get today, is it? <laughs> no, no, not nearly. I'll take the shiny space boat over frostbitten toes any day. Yeah, yeah, I will too. 
But it is an interesting story, and you see where it there is. are these these star myths associated with the name in a few different places. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Grimm's proposed etymology for the related names has more or less been replaced by later research. Linguists today believe the name Arendel is derived from Proto-Germanic Azewandelas. Now, that's one of those asterisk forms that's not really attested, oh, yeah. but it's uh, but it's been sort of reconstructed, okay. and it would mean something like dawn wanderer or luminous wanderer. The first hmm. element, Ozzy, comes from a Proto-Indo-European root that means to shine, and it's related to words for dawn and east in a lot of different languages, including okay. the English word east. And wandelas oh, yeah, yeah. is ultimately related to English words like wander, wend, and went. Huh. Huh. Interesting. So that's the probable etymology of that name. But now let's get back to Tolkien's letter because he was just about to explain the process of reverse engineering his own etymology for the name. Indeed. Uh, skipping ahead a few sentences from my last quote, Tolkien explains something that I think we already expect. He says, but the name could not be adopted just like that. It had to be accommodated to the elvish linguistic situation. Of course it does. <laughs> That's what I would say. Well, of course, course it does. Yeah. Uh, at the same Goes time as a place. Right. At the same time as a place where this person was made in legend. From this, far back in the history of Elvish, which was beginning, after many tentative starts in boyhood, to take definite shape at the time of the name's adoption, arose eventually A, the common Elvish stem A-Y-A-R, I-R, or A-R-C, primarily applied to the great sea of the West lying between Middle-earth and Amon, the blessed realm of the Valar, and B, the element or verbal base, Endil, to love be devoted to, describing the attitude of one to a person, thing, course, or occupation to which one is devoted for its own sake. So that's how we get lover of the sea, but specifically in the sense of devoted to the sea. Um, there's a footnote explaining the difference between that suffix Endil, to be devoted to, and endure, a similar ending with a meaning more like to serve. And this came up a while back when we talked about something else Tolkien said in the footnote, that mm. Sam's relation to Frodo can be viewed as in status endure, but in spirit endil. That is, he there serves him because he's his inferior, but he loves him. He's devoted to him. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there's Tolkien's reverse engineered uh, etymology mm -hmm. for the name. And it's a really cool one. <laughs> I kind of love it, yes. devoted to the sea. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now and he's so, just devoted to like flying in the ship all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to wonder, yeah, if he's devoted to the sea and now he's in the sky. I wonder how he feels yeah. about that. But, yeah, I know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But anyway, so we're almost done here. But there is one more thing that I wanted to point out because it will come up later in this episode. Mm -hmm. In another footnote to that letter that Alan was just reading from, Tolkien explains the specifically Christian symbolism of Eärendil, the morning star, in Old English poetry. He says that Eärendil is often supposed to refer to Christ or Mary, and in fact, that's actually what Grimm suggested in his book. Going back to Tolkien now, but comparison with another Old English text that contains the name, the Blickling Homilies, suggests that it refers to John the Baptist. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, certainly there were some parallels. Uh, just as the morning star precedes the sun after the long dark of night, John the Baptist was the first prophetic voice in almost 400 years before the birth of Christ. So that sort of made him a transitional figure, forming a link between Old and New Testaments, just as the morning star is a transitional figure between night and day. Uh, and though Jesus is called the morning star in most Christian traditions and actually refers to himself as the bright morning star in Revelation 22, the Eastern Orthodox Church refers to John specifically as the bright morning star. That's interesting. And I guess you can yeah. see why that would be the case. Like, well, sure, like you said right. earlier, the Crusades morning star the presaging dawn, right. the dawn, right. And, yeah. and, and John 
comes before Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this is something that I've only just learned since, well, the last time we talked about Arendelle a lot, which was probably <laughs> which was over one. three years ago. Or, yeah. No, not quite three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so the old English poem, Christ, that gave Tolkien the name, it isn't just any old religious poem. It's also sometimes called the Advent lyrics. And mm. the reason it's called that it is because it's, well, it's not really a translation. It's more of an adaptation or expansion of a okay. group of Latin verses called the O Antiphons. Now, these are a set of verses that date back to very early church, and they're traditionally sung at prayer services during the seven days before Christmas, during Advent. Okay. All right. And all of these verses allude to the coming of Christ, as you might expect from an Advent prayer service. True. And the Latin phrase, which is rendered as Ela Erendel in Old English, is actually, mm-hmm. in Latin, it's O Orianes, and it's a oh. lyric that likens the coming birth of Jesus to the break of day. Right. Now, O Orianes in Latin is frequently translated as O Morning Star or O Dayspring in modern Dayspring, English. That's the word that came to my mind. Yeah. 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 In a lot of modern English translations. But Orianes in Latin typically means either the east or the rising sun, not the morning star. Right. And that's just interesting to me because, and this is really fascinating, the usual uh-huh. Latin name for the morning star is Oh, you know Latin. Anyone? Yeah. Yeah. Lucifer. Yep. Now, how a Latin name for the morning star, which has stood since early Christian times as a symbol of either Jesus or Mary or John the Baptist, as we were just <laughs> depending talking. on who you are, or where you come from. Yeah, right? yeah, but it has always generally been a good thing. How sure. that ever became associated with the pre-fall name of Satan is—I don't even know. I think that's way beyond that's the scope above of this my podcast. pay grade. Yeah, right. yeah, that's what I was going to say. Totally Definitely. outside the scope of this podcast. Most assuredly. But what's, but what's interesting to me is that Tolkien would have been aware of this, and I mm-hmm. think. That's why the last line of Bilbo's poem that we're going to read today, it's very ah, interesting to me. Yeah, the Flamifer of Westerness. Now, mm-hmm. we've talked about that phrase before, though I think it was before we even started the show. Flamifer is a, it's a really interesting word, isn't it? Especially for Tolkien. It, it is, and it's a very interesting Latin word specifically. Right. Which, uh, we know that Latin is not usually a source that Tolkien turns to for nomenclature. Precisely, right. Now, the authors of Ring of Words notice the same thing. And they actually say this in their entry for the word flamifer. Flamifer is unusual in being a Tolkien coinage with Latin rather than Germanic roots, though this is appropriate in the context of the rather post-Renaissance vocabulary of the poem. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The Latin word flamifer literally means flame bearer. It sits easily with a small group of English words of this type, such as aquifer, water bearer, conifer, mm. cone bearer. They give a few more examples and then they come to the name Lucifer literally light bearer, and long used as a name for the morning star, although now avoided because of its satanic associations. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of tainted now. Yeah. Kind of tainted, yeah. So the authors of Ring of Words suggest that the Latin coinage is appropriate, given the admittedly very flowery language that Bilbo uses in the poem. Yeah, and that makes sense. Um, yeah. But they also hint at the fact that, like I said, it's, it is kind of ruined now. Um, yeah. And, and, and now, now's where I want to get into Tolkien's. Not too many people name their children Adolf anymore for that. You know, there's a reason <laughs> right. for that. Right. Yeah. The exactly. whole popular yeah. boy's name. Yeah. Yeah. The name has been sort of ruined for everybody going forward. Yes, it has. Um, and if I can get into Tolkien's head or try to get into Tolkien's head, if he were to want to use a Latin root name for the Morning Star to go with all the other Latin root words that are in this poem, that kind of post Renaissance language, 
Mm. Well, obviously, he can't choose Lucifer because that name now evokes exactly the wrong thing for the subject of this poem. (laughs) You're absolutely right. Um, And so that, I think, is reason enough for him to coin a new word. Right. But why one that's so close to Lucifer in both its form and Mm. its meaning? And I wonder if Tolkien did this on purpose. And and if I had to guess why, I wonder if he's trying to offer his readers a new word to use for the Morning Star, a new Latin-based word. That allows us to reclaim the morning star as a symbol of hope and light and distance it from its associations with the fall of Satan. Wow. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I, I certainly can't prove any of that. But no. That's kind of what I feel like is going on there. And I, and I wonder, yeah. is it, you know, is it a, a re, an attempt at recovery of this right. symbol of hope? A clear view on the morning star? I don't know. Yeah. I could buy that. I mean, it's certainly consistent with his views on recovery uh, as well as his own personal worldview. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So. These are the kinds of things I think about when I'm reading this poem again for the, for the fifth time in one week. Fifth. In, yeah, I was going to say just this week. In, yeah. yeah, in one week, yeah, at 1.30 in the morning. But <laughs> So anyway, uh, well, there you go. There's our segment. And that was yeah. a lot of fun. And when I it say sure fun, was. I mean fun. Yeah, Folks, there are times when I love doing this podcast, which is pretty much all the time. And then there are times like now when I just love doing this podcast. Well, Sean, it's important to feel fulfilled. <laughs> but we are, <laughs> And I do. Oh, I do. I know you do. Well, folks, we're finally ready to get back to the book. As you know, we're all about the books here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. We are. We do bring you other Tolkien stuff from time to time. But at heart, Alan and I are fans of Tolkien's books and books about Tolkien. That's our passion. And as you know, we read a lot of books in preparation for the show every week. And if you'd like to get your hands on a book that we've mentioned, you're going to want to check out the official library page on our website, theprancingponypodcast.com. There, we have links to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other stuff on our website, too. Show notes and book links specific to each episode, outtakes, Prancing Pony Ponderings, and a few other little extras. You'll also find a link to our online storefront, where you can now find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear as we get our designs up and running. Mm -hmm. And I can actually give you that address here. It's teespring.com slash stores slash PPP. So please check that out. And now, let's stop making Sean wait for this poem. I'm going to go ahead and step out of the booth and let him wrap up mini-meetings by himself. Kidding. All right, folks, here we go. In fact, I'm actually going to start. Yeah, you are. And you know what? I'm glad because it wouldn't be the same without you. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. Who's going to stop me from rambling on for four hours about this Exactly. I don't want a four-hour episode on our feed. We we almost did that in season one. We're not going to do that anymore. We did, and that was just with Tour. That it was. Or Turin. One or, one or the Both other. Of them, I think I it was think. Turin, yeah. <laughs> I think I think Turin was one where we had a three-hour episode. I think Turin was, was four hours combined. Three. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because we did those in the same night. Oh, oh. <laughs> that, was, that was a bad Such idea. Such a long night. That was. All right, I'm going to pick up exactly where we left off in the uh, last episode. Frodo hid the ring away. Hey, you've got to hide your ring away. That's beautiful. That's Sorry, beautifully do done. That. <laughs> well, thank you. I don't know. We might just have the title for this episode. We, we haven't had a Beatles title. It has been a bit. So getting back to the text that only had five words done before I already digressed. <laughs> and the shadow passed, leaving hardly a shred of memory. The light and music of Rivendell was about him again. Bilbo smiled and laughed happily. Every item of news from the Shire that Frodo could tell, aided and corrected now and again by Sam, was of the greatest interest to him from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in Hobbiton. They were so deep in the doings of the four farthings 
that they did not notice the arrival of a man clad in dark green cloth. For many minutes, he stood looking down at them with a smile. Suddenly, Bilbo looked up. Ah, there you are at last, Dunedin, he cried. Strider, said Frodo. You seem to have a lot of names. <laughs> well, Strider's one that I haven't heard before anyway, said Bilbo. What do you call him that for? They call me that in Bree, said Strider, laughing. And that is how I was introduced to him. And why do you call him Dunedin, asked Frodo. The Dunedin, said Bilbo. He is often called that here. But I thought you knew enough Elvish, at least, to know Dun Adan, man of the West, Numenorian. But this is not the time for lessons. He turned to Strider. Where have you been, my friend? Why weren't you at the feast? The Lady Arwen was there. I'm going to go ahead and stop there, and we'll chat about that. My goodness. Well, of course, Frodo catches Bilbo up in the Shire. I love that Sam interjects, Sam's I'm sure. Sam's directions, you know, Sam's attention to detail. Yeah. That's why he's absolutely. there. Absolutely. <laughs> that is exactly why he's there. It makes me think of that thing that we saw in Hammond and Skull. I think it was an article that Hammond wrote that talked about the Arcadia of the Shire. Bilbo's kind of recalling that now, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He's kind of he's kind of going back to to his memories of the Shire, and yeah. Frodo's helping him relive some of that. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's a little bit of fellowship here too. A lot of oh, fellowship, yeah. really. I mean, just no doubt the, about the three it. Three right. of them just hanging out, catching up, and um, yeah, yeah. It's it's just a neat moment. It is a neat moment. And then Strider shows up, and I love that they don't even notice him because, of course, he can be pretty sneaky. Yes, he can. He, no, he, he can, can. He can hide he can, when he wants to. He can. Uh, he can be unseen if he wishes, or something like that. Mm-hmm, I can't something along that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting that Bilbo doesn't even know the name Strider. And we recently, I don't know, maybe an episode, I don't know, one or two episodes 137. ago. One thirty-seven. One thirty-seven. Was it one thirty-seven? Talked about the the many names of Aragorn. Yeah. Right. That he and Turin had a similar quantity of names. Yeah. So no wonder these two have different names for him. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But this at least is one that is, you know, he's called a lot around here. Right. And Bilbo explains it to Frodo, gives him a little elvish lesson. Dune Adan, mm-hmm. Man right. of the West or Numenorian. Mm-hmm. Uh, man of the West. That's a nice name to give to your friend and that collaborator, is I think. Man of the West. I kind of like, that's yeah. got a nice ring to it. Yeah, it does. It man really does. of the West. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. Dune Adan, by the way, is unfortunately taken as a license plate in California, or I, I would have it. Is it really? I am yes. so sorry to hear that. I know. I was very disappointed when I... <laughs> that would be a perfect one, but anyway. That would that would totally be perfect, yeah. I know, it really would. Oh, well. Also, this is almost the first time we've seen the name Numenorian in the text, isn't it? I think it might be. I, I want to say I'll it's do a quick word prologue. search just to find out. But Okay, uh, yeah. I want to say it's once in the prologue, and then I think it's maybe yeah, one more time Yeah, the history of Numenor. Uh, and then in the Knife, a Knife in the Dark, Aragorn talks about Enneve Arendel came the kings of Numenor, that is That's Westerness. what I was thinking, yeah. Those are the only so, two appearances, once in the prologue and once in the so Knife far, in the Dark. Yeah. yeah. So here's a place where Numenorian is probably not much better of an explanation for us than it is for... No, that's true, than, especially than just for anybody who doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's, of course, it's not the time for lessons anyway, so... <laughs> no, no, certainly not. I like this first really explicit suggestion that Arwen has some sort of connection to or meaning for Strider. That's that's a nice little moment, like, hey, the Lady Arwen was there. Hey, hey. And a wink, you know. wink, nudge, nudge. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> and poor Strider. He, yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I know. I would have loved to yeah. hang out with her, but, you know, Eladon and Elro here, you know, they, they mm-hmm. came back out of the wild and yeah, had to, had to hear their tidings. Had to do a debrief. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So then they then Bilbo off. asks for some, yeah, they go off to go finish a song. Right. Go pol- Which is, I mean, we, you, know, you and I do that all the time at Tolkien 2019, didn't we? Sorry, folks, we can't <laughs> talk anymore. We're going to go finish a song. 
No, not That's once. True. Not uh, once. Not, not, a, actually not a song, but we actually did say we've got to take off. We've got to go finish getting ready for this. Well, yeah, we've either got to write <laughs> our skit or we've got to write right. our show or we've got to figure out what guest is going to show up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did. We actually did that a lot. Uh, quite so. a bit, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and have you pick up right after that uh, once Strider and Bilbo head off. Okay. Frodo was left to himself for a while, for Sam had fallen asleep. He was alone and felt rather forlorn, although all about him, the folk of Rivendell, were gathered. But those near him were silent, intent upon the music of the voices and the instruments, and they gave no heed to anything else. Frodo began to listen. At first, the beauty of the melodies and of the interwoven words in elven tongues, even though he understood them little, held him in a spell as soon as he began to attend to them. Almost it seemed that the words took shape, and visions of far lands and bright things that he had never yet imagined opened out before him, and the firelit hall became like a golden mist above seas of foam that sighed upon the margins of the world. Mm. Then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike, until he felt that an endless river of swelling gold and silver was flowing over him, too multitudinous for its pattern to be comprehended, it became part of the throbbing air about him, and it drenched and drowned him. Swiftly, he sank under its shining weight into a deep realm of sleep. Wow. That is an amazing description. That is such a gorgeous description. I mean, this, <laughs> yeah, is, a, yeah. this is a spiritual, like, yeah. I mean, this is like a transcendent spiritual yes, reaction to this, to this song. You know, I, and we've seen, you know, this idea of, of elvish singing even if you mm -hmm. don't know the words, them taking shapes, right. sort of creating a picture in your mind. We saw this pretty recently, actually. We saw this in chapter three of mm -hmm. book one, when the hobbits came upon Gildor in the woody end. That's true. I mean, granted, that's almost a year ago uh, in the way that our show's running, uh, but that is relatively It feels recently. like yesterday, though. I, I was it totally, does, doesn't it? I, was, I, know. I was being totally straight-faced when I said that. You were, I know. I was like, wow, chapter three of book one, that would have been, oh yeah, that would have been like last November. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or something like true. that. But we also saw it in chapter 17 of the Silmarillion, so that's going way mm -hmm. back, when Finrod played that, uh, that rude harp for Beor's people. Remember right. that? Right. Yeah. Amazing stuff. And so Frodo really does have this vision, right? Yeah. You know, these far lands never imagined. Mm -hmm. um, the whole hall becomes a vision, and there's this, there's this sort of right. palpable feeling to the song. That's a good way of putting it, the, this drenched feeling, this mm -hmm. drowned feeling, and the throbbing air. It's, this is very, very palpable, like you said. Mm -hmm. And the and text then, even says it was an enchantment. Yeah, you know, absolutely. The, I mean, it's flat out. became more and more dreamlike. Yeah. First, it's, it held him in a spell, and then the enchantment became more and more dreamlike. So we mm -hmm. couldn't be told more clearly what it is. Yeah. But I want to compare this description of Elvis, Elvis music. <laughs> of Elvis's music? Oh. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to compare any Elvis. I'm not music. that big of an Elvis fan, but okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll hear you out. I wouldn't say enchantment. Oh, goodness. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> you ain't nothing but a hound. There you oh, go. You ain't nothing but a hound. That's a terrible hand. Elvis impression, but you know. You ain't nothing but a hobbit. There you go. Short and hairy little feet. Yeah, See, like you've that, got right. a good Elvis voice. I'm like the only person in the world that doesn't have an Elvis voice. Thank you. <laughs> so I want to compare this description of Elvish music with a passage from On Fairy Stories. Now, we looked into this way back. you think those others were a while back. This was <laughs> way back at our very first episode, what, three and a half years ago. Wow. 
Yeah. This is from the section entitled Fantasy, and it's where we get the idea of the green sun and the secondary world, secondary belief bit. Mm -hmm. In a passage in which he's distinguishing drama from literature, he adds this. Now, fairy and drama, those plays which, according to abundant records, the elves have often presented to men, can produce fantasy with a realism and immediacy beyond the compass of any human mechanism. As a result, their usual effect upon a man is to go beyond secondary belief. If you are present at a fairy and drama, you yourself are, or think that you are, bodily inside its secondary world. The experience may be very similar to dreaming, and has, it would seem, sometimes by men, been confounded with it. Wow. You hear that? Wow. And that's exactly what Bilbo's that's or what exactly Frodo's experiencing here. That is exactly it, and that is an excellent call-out. I'm glad you brought that up, because that is... Mm -hmm. That's right on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely spot on, and it's exactly what Tolkien was trying to accomplish, and he demonstrated it right here after talking about it in Ontario. I think stories. so. And, and, you know, and I think going back to our first episode, I think we might have even asked the question, like, what does he mean by this fairy and drama? And, right, right, right. Because it's a, it's a kind of a weird thing that just kind of comes out of nowhere in, this, in that essay. Yeah. But well, and then this, this. this notion that elves have actually often presented it to men. I mean, right. that's, yeah. that's where he starts to mix the reality with right. sort of this idea yeah. that, you know, the legend and things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. He does that. Though. Yeah. He does that in that, in that part of that essay kind of, kind of mm. tongue in cheek, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Right here in Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's, here it is. That's, that's what he's talking about. Yep. No doubt Good about catch. it. Well, we're about to get to Sean's favorite thing ever. And that's the song of oh, Arendelle. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so I think, you know, that before we actually start it, we're going to have to do a sidebar and folks, I should let you know that if you're not interested in the sidebar, skip ahead to like the hour and 20 minute mark. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Won't be that bad, uh, but uh, it is going to be, I'm sure. A it's going to be a long sidebar. one. It All right, gonna Sean, be a long fire one. away, man. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the poem and the mm -hmm. versions of the poem, because uh, folks may know Tolkien wrote several distinct poems about Arendelle. Mm -hmm. And we will be now, reading each one. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> because I demanded it. No. That's no, right. No. Now, if you've been listening to us in season one, you may remember our Tolkien Reading Day episode for 2017. Mm -hmm. I actually read three poems that were either about Arendelle or sort of within the orbit of the character. And yes, that oh. pun is totally intended. Don't oh, judge that's me. bad. That's Do bad. not judge me. Uh, we will be talking more about two of those poems today, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So sure. the first poem Tolkien ever wrote about Arendelle was written in September 1914, and it was originally titled The Voyage of Arendelle, the Evening Star. Now, this one is actually published in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 2, in the chapter called The Tale of Arendelle. That was the first one. There's also a few other poems in there that have a little bit to do with Arendelle. Mm -hmm. There's also a very brief fragment, uh, less than 40 lines, of an alliterative lay of Arendelle that Tolkien started around the mid-1920s. That one, he ended up abandoning it, and he never picked it up again. And what little there is of it, like I said, less than 40 lines, is published in The Lays of Beleriand in a section called Poems Early Abandoned. Wow. It's like a graveyard of poetry. It is. And there's some pretty cool yeah. stuff in there, too. But it's oh, yeah, there actually is. very fragmentary, unfortunately. I know, unfortunately. It's a, yeah. lot, of might have, it's a lot of, like, might-have-beens. You're like, oh, mm -hmm. man, I wish he'd finished I know. One. It makes you want to finish them, except that we're not poets. Yeah. Uh, now, the poem we're reading today is not based on either of those. The poem presented in The Lord of the Rings as being the work of Bilbo is actually based on another poem that originally was not about Arendelle. <laughs> now, that's the poem called Errantry, which you may know from The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Now, in The Treason of Isengard, that's the seventh volume of the history of Middle-earth, 
In the section devoted to this chapter of The Lord of the Rings, Christopher Tolkien writes, No poem of my father's had so long and complex a history as that which he named Errantry. It issued ultimately in two entirely distinct poems, one of which was the song that Bilbo chanted at Rivendell. And he proceeds to lay out the history of the poem and how both of these distinct versions arose for the next 20 pages. Highly recommended if you're as big a fan of these poems as my co-host is. Highly, highly recommended. <laughs> Pretty much required reading, actually. Yeah, totally, yeah. Uh, but to get back on track, the Errantry poem was first written probably around the early 1930s. It's hard to say for sure, because Christopher says that even the earliest existing manuscript of the poem doesn't show the usual signs of being a first draft. Hmm. He says, the, the earliest version that my father retained is a rough penciled manuscript without title. There were certainly preliminary workings behind it, now lost, since this text was set down without hesitations or corrections. But it seems very probable that it was in fact the first complete text of the poem, possibly that from which he read it to the original inklings in the early 1930s. Wow. And that poem, in case you have not read it, is, it's just so much fun. It's, <laughs> it's about a merry passenger, a messenger, a mariner. He goes on this series of bizarre adventures. Um, the poem is very fun. It's very light, very silly. Right. It is actually Arendelesque because of this yeah. you know, epic journey that this character goes on. But it's not right. explicitly said to be Arendel, And it doesn't, doesn't, really, it doesn't really line up with Arendel's voyages no. exactly. But it no. is Arendelish. And mm -hmm. uh, it's not the easiest thing to read aloud. I'll put that up no. there, too. No, it's definitely not. In fact, in a 1952 letter to Rainer Unwin, which is number 133 in Carpenter's volume, Tolkien explained that he wrote it in a meter I invented, depending on trisyllabic assonances or near assonances, which is so difficult that except in this one example, I have never been able to use it again. <laughs> it just blew out in a single impulse. <laughs> How awesome that that poem yeah. just blew out in a single impulse. That's yeah, amazing. Done. Yeah. And in a 1966 letter to Donald Swan, who was in the process of setting several of Tolkien's poems to music for The Road Goes Ever On, right. Tolkien said, It is, of course, a piece of verbal acrobatics and metrical hijinks, and was intended for recitation with great variations of speed. It needs a reciter or chanter capable of producing the words with great clarity, but in places with great rapidity. Well, that rules you out, Pip. <laughs> By the way. <laughs> and me. Yeah. yeah. Pip and Sean. <laughs> yeah. By the way, that didn't stop Donald Swan from setting it to music, which you can hear if you get a hold of The Road Goes Ever On with the CD included. Or I suppose yeah. the older versions if you have a record player or a tape The machine. old uh, flexi disc, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, Errantry was published as early as November of 1933 in the Oxford Magazine. It went through five different drafts, but according to Christopher, it was more or less in the Oxford Magazine version by the second draft. But then Tolkien went through no less than 15 more oh, iterations of the poem. 15. Wow in what Christopher Tolkien calls the Rivendell version. You can actually read many of these versions in their entirety in The Treason of Isengard, and you can actually see a gradual evolution of the poem from the Errantry version to the Song of Arendil version. Wow. As, yeah. you're, as you're reading it, you know, each subsequent manuscript kind of brings it a little closer to the form that we have here and which we're about to read. Now, as you've probably noticed, if you've read both poems, the Song of Arendil version still sounds substantially like the Errantry version. Yeah. It's got the same meter. It's got the same use of internal rhyme and assonance. Uh, it's got the same verbal acrobatics and metrical hijinks. I love that phrase, metrical hijinks. It's a, it's a yeah. great phrase, and it's, it's really true. Mm -hmm. But despite sounding very similar, the two poems only have one complete line in common, 
and that's the line, his scabbard of chalcedony. My goodness. Now, years later, as Tolkien was preparing the 1962 publication of The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, he went back to the pre-Arendil version, not quite all the way back to the 1933 published Errantry, but to a later revised version. And that's what appears in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Now, in doing that, Tolkien basically created two living versions of what used to be the same poem, both of them existing within the legendarium. Right, exactly. Because in yeah. the preface to Adventures of Tom Bombadil, Errantry is introduced as evidently made by Bilbo. Yep. This is indicated by its obvious relationship to the long poem recited by Bilbo as his own composition in the House of Elrond. In origin, a nonsense rhyme. It is in the Rivendell version found transformed and applied, somewhat incongruously, to the high elvish and <laughs> Numenorean legends of Arendil. Probably because Bilbo invented its metrical devices and was proud of them. So, <laughs> Probably. Giving, giving a little nod to the common lineage of the two poems and I think maybe revealing a little bit of Tolkien's own pride at his oh, yeah. uh, metrical devices he invented. I think so, given that letter we'd read earlier about, mm -hmm. you know, how it, it, it blew up. Like, that was it. I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. So he needed to keep using it while he could. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Probably because I invented, I mean, Bilbo invented his metrical devices and was proud of them. Yeah. Love that. I love that. I do too. Still, we're not done. Can you believe it? No. Uh, the no. version that ended up being published <laughs> in The Lord of the Rings as Bilbo's Song of Arendelle is not the final version he intended to publish. This was really fascinating. Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah, this was what this is fascinating stuff. This is kind of shocking, actually. A little bit, Christopher yeah. Tolkien stated that three more versions of the poem were done after the version that was sent to the publishers and that was included yep. in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Christopher says, What actually happened, one can only surmise. I believe the most likely explanation to be that the texts D, E, F were mislaid, and that's the, the three after the, three. The, the one that was right. published, which is C, mm -hmm. and that at the crucial time, the version represented by C went to the publishers, as it should not have done. Mm. It looks also as if these lost texts did not turn up again until many years had passed, by which time my father no longer remembered the history. Now, Hammond and Skull commented on this as well. Imagine they'd have to, really, in The Lord of the Rings, A yeah. Reader's Companion. They published there, complete and unbroken, the form in which the poem should have been published, but then they explained why they didn't include this should-have-been version in the corrected text of The Lord of the Rings that they worked on for publication back in 2004. They say, We hesitated to replace large portions of the established version of Eärendil was a Mariner, even with lines very likely to have been preferred by its author. Our policy was to approach all emendations conservatively, and this seemed too great a change to contemplate, let alone to suggest, on a much different scale than the correction of clear errors or the alteration of small details for the sake of accuracy or consistency. Also, we felt that we should not ignore the fact that, even granting Christopher Tolkien's argument that his father had come to forget its textual history, Tolkien had not taken the opportunity to alter Bilbo's song at Rivendell for the second edition in 1965. It is a difficult issue, in which one could argue cogently either way, for replacement or for letting the 1954 text stand, though with minor typographical corrections. In the event, it seemed prudent to do the latter but to discuss the matter here and to include the final version in its entirety. And that's what they've done. Yep. So the original published version is in the text, but yes, they've got the complete version of how it should have been published in yep. the Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion. Another reason to get that book if you don't have it already. Absolutely. Now, for more on any of this, or if you want to hear me read both the Errantry poem and the Song of Arendil, 
back before I knew how to do it properly. Uh, <laughs> ch- check out uh, a couple of our season one episodes. Uh, episode 35, that was Tolkien mm-hmm. Reading Day 2017, where I read the poems. Uh, yeah. And also check out episode 43. That was the A. Arendel chapter of the Silmarillion. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's where we talked about some of the stuff and the textual history of uh, the poem and the character. Right. And someday I'll, I'll give it another shot reading the entire poem in its entirety. Sure you will. I'll let you Not have today, that shot. Though. No, thank you. <laughs> but before we get to the song itself, though, we want to remind you about a new sponsor here at the Prancing Pony Podcast. Now, if you didn't hear us last time, socks are the most requested clothing item in homeless shelters. Bombas is on a mission to change that. Now, they make really comfy socks, but what makes Bombas really special is that for every pair of socks purchased, Bombas donates a pair to somebody in need. More than 20 million pairs so far. Bombas socks come in all sorts of colors, patterns, lengths, and styles, and are perfect for the whole family. Get your hands on a pair of Bombas socks, and your feet will thank you. I wear my cushion no-show socks just about any time I'm not wearing sandals. I love them. Fact is, though, the thing I like most about Bombas is knowing that every time I buy a pair, somebody who needs a pair is getting them too. I've been wearing my Merino wool quarter socks every day. They're soft and comfy for sitting down and reading my favorite book, again, but they're breathable (laughs) and cool enough for fall in Texas. And I also love knowing that my purchases help somebody else in need. Absolutely. Now, save 20% on your first purchase when you shop at bombas.com slash PPP. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash PPP to save 20%. Bombas.com slash PPP. And thanks to Bombas for partnering with us on this. All right, folks. So we have actually finally arrived at Sean's favorite moment, his raison d'etre. <laughs> Almost. The, I don't know. There is another moment that I like more than this one later in the book. Yeah, People I know. It happened. Hap- has to do with Eowyn, I know. Yeah. Uh, but this one is your big one. This and is up there. We are this here. Up there. We are here. Yeah. And ironically, I'm going to start. There just, you are. Just because long. you're not expecting it. That's why. <laughs> exactly. It just, it's just sort of kind of a, a little twist. Yeah. There he wandered long in a dream of music that turned into running water and then suddenly into a voice. It seemed to be the voice of Bilbo chanting verses. Faint at first, and then clearer ran the words. Eärendil was a mariner that tarried in Arvernian. He built a boat of timber, felled a nimberthil to journey in. Her sails he wove of silver fair, of silver were her lanterns made. Her prow he fashioned like a swan, and light upon her banners laid. In panoply of ancient kings, in chained rings he armored him. His shining shield was scored with runes to ward all wounds and harm from him. His bow was made of dragonhorn, his arrows shorn of ebony. Of silver was his habergeon, his scabbard of chalcedony. His sword of steel was valiant, of adamant his helmet tall, an eagle plume upon his crest, upon his breast an emerald. Beneath the moon and under star he wandered far from northern strands, bewildered on enchanted ways beyond the days of mortal lands. From gnashing of the narrow ice where shadow lies on frozen hills, from nether heats and burning waste he turned in haste, and roving still, on starless waters far astray, at last he came to night of naught. And passed, and never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. The winds of wrath came driving him, and blindly in the foam he fled, from west to east, and errandless, unheralded, he homeward sped. There flying Elwing came to him, and flame was in the darkness lit, more bright than light of diamond the fire upon her carcanet. The Silmaril she bound on him and crowned him with the living light, and dauntless then with burning brow he turned his prow, and in the night from other world beyond the sea there strong and free a storm arose, a wind of power in Tarmanel, by paths that seldom mortal goes, his boat it bore with biting breath as might of death across the grey and long forsaken seas distressed. From east to west he passed away. 
Through ever night he back was born on black and roaring waves that ran or leagues unlit and founded shores that drowned before the days began, until he heard on strands of pearl where ends the world the music long, wherever foaming billows roll the yellow gold and jewels wan. He saw the mountains silent rise where twilight lies upon the knees of Valinor, and Eldamar beheld afar beyond the seas. A wanderer escaped from night to Haven White he came at last, to Elvenholm, the green and fair, where keen the air, where pale as glass beneath the hill of Ilmarin, a glimmer in of valley sheer, the lamplit towers of Tyrion are mirrored on the Shadowmere. And in order to avoid copyright problems, we're going to skip the next two stanzas and then I'll finish up. And it hurts, but we have to do it. Boy, it does, doesn't it? I mean, ooh. From Evereven's lofty hills, where softly silver fountains fall, his wings him bore, a wandering light, beyond the mighty mountain wall. From world's end then he turned away, and yearned again to find afar his home through shadows journeying, and burning as an island star on high above the mists he came, a distant flame before the sun, a wonder ere the waking dawn where gray the Norland waters run. And over Middle-earth he passed, and heard at last the weeping sore of women and of elven maids in elder days and years of yore. But on him mighty doom was laid, till moon should fade, and orbid star to pass, and tarry nevermore on hither shores where mortals are. Forever still a herald on an errand that should never rest to bear his shining lamp afar, the Flamifer of Westerness. Wow. Well, there you go. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> it is such a cool poem. Isn't it? And yes, it did hurt to skip a couple of stanzas, but we have it to. It did hurt. We don't want to get it in did. trouble, folks. No, no, we don't. And before we discuss the actual stanzas, and we are going to go through a stanza-by-stanza stanza look at this, Sean has a couple of things to say just kind of in general. Yeah, I just want to say a couple of things about the the structure of the lines, the rhyme scheme particularly. It yeah. does have a, a complex rhyme scheme. Um, I've I've labeled it as A, A, B, C, C, B. And the reason mm. I've got two letters back to back with A, B, and C, B is because we're actually talking about half lines there, really. Yeah, yeah, we are. What happens is that the end of the first line of each couplet has either an assonance or in some cases, an exact rhyme with the middle of the second line of the couplet. Um, remember, Tolkien talked about trisyllabic assonances in one of the letters we read earlier. Right. If you look at the last three syllables of the first line, you'll find three syllables in the middle of the next line that assonate with it. So right. you've got mariner and tarried in, or timberfeld and nimberthill. Mm -hmm. Now, those first couple of lines are a little looser than most of them, but later on you get some really obvious ones, like like a swan, light upon, right. ancient kings, chained rings. Right. So you've got that complex rhyme scheme going throughout. And then the end of each couplet rhymes with the end of the next couplet two lines later. So you've got Arvernian, journey in, mm -hmm. or orbit star, mortals are, that kind of thing. Right, right. Man. So yeah, uh, notice that throughout as you're as you're going back and reading this again, uh, really complex, but also really fun. You know, yeah. Uh, despite the fact that this is a, I don't want to say a somber poem, but it's a serious topic. You know, Eärendil's quest topic. is one of the most important mm -hmm. stories in the entire Legendarium, and yet we've got this very sort of lighthearted, whimsical. Treatment. Yeah, it is yeah, a whimsical sort of a, treatment. Oh, yeah, yeah, it really is. Yeah. So I think with that, I think we can go ahead and turn to looking at the stanzas themselves and kind of talk about the structure of the of the story as it's told mm -hmm. in this poem. Um, right. I've got a few things that I want to say about the the way the stanzas relate to each other. Okay. And some of this is going to be based entirely on my own analysis of the structure of the song. I can't blame anybody else for this. This this just comes Not from even me, me having 
not even me. You. That's right. And I'm not. And I'm not even sure if you're going to agree with all of it. But I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's just it's just something. Wouldn't that it I've be nice if we finally sort of, disagreed? If we finally disagreed about the structure of the poem of Arundel. So anyway, let's go back to stanza one. And all right. one thing you'll notice is that each stanza, at least in in my opinion, each stanza really focuses on a particular theme or a particular right. kind of image. Now, the first stanza is full of references to the beauty and the brightness of Arendelle's ship, Vingala. Right, right. It starts with the, the wood from Nimberthil. That's the, the white silver birch. Right. So that's what the literal meaning of the word is. So we're talking about white birch wood. Mm-hmm. That's right. And Walter and Graham Judd point out in Flora of Middle-earth that the English word birch actually comes from a Proto-Indo-European root meaning to shine or gleam. You just so, want to say Proto-Indo-European again. Always. Yeah. Any, t- any chance I get. I'm glad it's the birch, though, because I don't know if I would have been happy if it was the large. The large. <laughs> anyway. I knew exactly where you're going with that. You, I know you plan. did. So did about we half our We did not listeners. rehearse that. No, we did not. <laughs> rehearse? Do we rehearse? I didn't even realize <laughs> no, we, we did not. any rehearsals. No, I've never been don't. to one. <laughs> nope, we don't. All right. So, yeah, this wood is known for its light color. So you need to imagine right. a very a, a very white kind of gleaming ship. Yes. And of course, you've got the silver sails, the silver right. lantern. And yeah. then I thought this was neat, the prow in the shape of a swan, which put me in mind of the white ships of the Tellery. Well, the formerly white ships, the now charcoal bricks of the Tellery uh, in Al- <laughs> <laughs> that were once in Alcolande. Yeah. Thanks a lot, yeah. Feanor. Yeah. Thanks Whack. a lot. <laughs> he just did that so that A. Rendell's ship would be the most beautiful ship in Arda. Oh, yeah. That's, that's I'm the sure reason he did. he did it. It's yeah. Babimi, man. There you go. I mean, it is Babimi. Well, this part is. Well, this yeah. is. Because Iluvatar can turn total <laughs> crap into good stuff. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, maybe exactly. that's our new tagline for Spabimi. Iluvatar turning crap into really good stuff. <laughs> maybe that's our T-shirt What's the acronym thing. for that? I don't know if it's going to be quite as catchy as Spabimi. No, probably not. Uh, probably not. All right. So that was actually a fairly short stanza. The only one I think that's that short. Uh, eight lines. I think the rest are all significantly longer. But uh, what do you have for us on stanza two? Yeah, so stanza two is uh, the panoply stanza. This is all about yes. Arendelle's arms and armor. And just as the previous stanza was full of references to the beauty of the ship, this mm-hmm. stanza is full of references to the beauty and the majesty and oh, sort yeah. of the exotic stuff that Arendelle has yeah. in his You're absolutely his right. Well, even Panoply, the Oxford English Dictionary, says it connotes brightness and splendor. We're talking about a full suit of armor. That's what Panoply is. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the added connotation of brightness and splendor. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We get that really cool shining shield scored with runes, which is, you know, a reference to runic inscriptions of power. We've talked about that a number of times on the show. Yeah. And, you know, what I get from that, from scoring the, the armor with runes, scoring the shield with runes, right. is, is that he's protected not only physically, but also. Oh, yeah. Magically or spiritually, right, right. This is full plate he, armor he, plus one. Got, yeah, he's yeah, he's got some power behind this mm-hmm. this shield. Absolutely, he's got he's got this dragon horn bow and these ebony oh. arrows. This is not standard issue, uh, you know, slender bows. No. The grind you got to go <laughs> slender bows. <laughs> I was just thinking about the grind you got to go through to get enough ebony to craft your arrows, and and you know. In any game oh, yeah. worth its salt. This and this is like high level fletching, you know, high level oh, yeah. fletching skill. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, now, a, a little bit more from the Judds uh, in Flora of Middle Earth. 
Um, Ebony. These would be the actually, Judds, the authors of the book, not Judds, the country singers. I just want to make sure. Yes, that's but that's exactly about. why I said it that way. Just because I, I know I that's why you said it that way. Because yeah. you were tempting me to jump in on that. I was, yeah. I, I was, and you did not disappoint. Of course not. Never so, <laughs> Ebony, it turns out, is native to India and Sri Lanka. Uh, it would not have been common in the Middle Earth of the Third Age. No, it wouldn't. And they say, which likely is precisely why this word was chosen by Bilbo as he composed the poem. It's, it's exotic. It's it's. It's not something yeah. that everybody has access to. Absolutely so it just kind of it kind of highlights just how how out there Arendelle's gear is. I really wish though that he had something that was ivory because then you know we'd have to sing a song. <laughs> yes, we would have to sing Ebony and, and Ivory. Live together, Live together in perfect <laughs> harmony. Which of course we don't have. We do not have perfect harmony. We don't have we, any we kind of any harmony, harmony. We don't which is why I'm amazed that we keep on going back to Beach Boys songs. I know. I know. Yeah, we really have to avoid that. We should probably do like, you know, punk rock or something that doesn't require any sense of melody whatsoever. Yeah. Just yeah, we totally screaming should. into the mic. Yeah. But All of right. course, when we when we move forward from the 60s to the 80s, we decided to go with Ebony and Ivory, which is so which far is from punk rock. Very, very far from indeed. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to mention a few words that are in here. One of them will actually bring us back to the 80s as well. First is habergen. That's the word. It looks like maybe habergion, but it's it's habergen. Mm -hmm. uh, and the OED tells us that is a sleeveless coat or jacket of mail or scale armor. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's chalcedony. That's a precious or semi-precious stone like onyx or agate. So, again, very exotic, very rare, and certainly uh, pretty mm -hmm. amazing and probably heavy. <laughs> a Probably pretty heavy for stone. a scabbard, yeah. I'm assuming yeah. it means that it's like trimmed with that. I mean, like the entire scabbard it's is not one big Yeah, it's piece probably like bedazzled, you know. Bedazzled, I like that word. And then there's adamant, which is not Adam Ant. I just wanted to make that clear. <laughs> there's your 80s There's reference. your other 80s reference. Exactly. You're, you're and, for. and anybody who saw this text knew that was coming for me. Yeah. Hammond and Skull point out that it's a rock or mineral of legend or folklore. And then the OED adds that now it's used poetically or rhetorically. For the embodiment of surpassing hardness, that which is impregnable to any application of force. You know, what's interesting about that word adamant is that, strangely enough, it's etymologically related to diamond, huh. uh, to the word diamond. Uh, That's but, interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to give anybody the wrong idea. It's not, it's not diamond. It's just a, a no, word that it's is a mythical. To a, right. Right. It is like a mythical mineral substance that, Harder you know, than that would have been used. Right. Exactly. Right. So yeah. then we've got this eagle plume. Which, oh, yeah. I, I mean, not only is this going to look really cool, but I think, you know, symbolic of Manway. Oh, yeah. Possibly an, an indicator of, you know, the holiness of the quest that Arendelle is sure. going on. Wouldn't be surprised. And then, of course, you get the uh, the addition of Elisar here, the upon his breast, an emerald, the green stone, mm -hmm. which is presumably the Elisar itself. Presumably, indeed. Especially mm -hmm. when we see later on why Bilbo added the green That's stone. That's right. right. And that we will. Yeah. So let's move on to stanza three. Yeah. So before we do move on, I want I want people to see that this is a pattern we're going to see throughout the poem where we've got mm -hmm. pairs of stanzas that contrast each other. Oh, yeah. Or yeah. Sometimes complement each other. Right. Usually I'd the say the ship and then him. Yeah. It's it's all about just the just how epic his stuff is. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, behold my stuff. <laughs> Thor, Thor Ragnarok, Thor right? Which which That's actually a, is funny because it's Carl Urban, isn't it? That's it, it is Carl Urban. <laughs> I think so. That's yeah. right. Carl Urban as uh, oh gosh, I can't remember I can't his remember name. His character's name now. But um, yeah, behold my stuff. <laughs> but yeah, and so now we're back at Thor because we were talking about Thor earlier on with the story. Yeah, you're right. We did about the the frozen toe turning up to be yeah. Arendelle. Yeah. 
Yep. Full circle, circle. folks. That's what we do. Yeah. All right. So Arundel's stuff is prettier than a frozen toe floating in the sky. Oh, far and away. Far and away. (laughs) But that brings us to stanza three, which I like to call Lost in the Dark. Okay. This stanza shows our hero bewildered. Mm -hmm. He's lost. He's wandering. Now, of course, not all those who wander are lost, but this guy is. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. This one certainly is. Yeah, you're right. And he's in the dark for much of this stanza, literally and figuratively. Truly. You know, right from the beginning, he's beneath the moon and under star. So there's right. light there, but it's not the bright light of day. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, this is just a fun side note. Also notice that Arendelle is described as being beneath it. He, mm-hmm. He's earthbound. Mm-hmm. And, and this is really interesting because later on, this beneath the moon is going to be inverted uh, in a yeah, later light, right. which we'll come to. Yeah. But we see him bewildered on enchanted ways. Now, this is Mm. probably a reference to the enchanted isles that were protecting Valinor. Yep. We see him beyond the days of mortal lands. You know, that suggests that he's figuratively beyond daylight. You know, it's like he's in a perpetual night out where he's roaming. We also get that he's cold, too, because we see the narrow ice. That's going to be the Mm Helcaraxa in the north where shadow lies. Yep. Uh, And then also, interestingly, nether heats and burning wastes. So, He's gone from north all the way to the south, too, or, you know, yeah. equatorial regions. Yeah, yeah, that's what it seems like. We see more darkness with the starless waters. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only is that a literal darkness, but we also see a, a figurative separation from Varda, which is very interesting. We see this phrase, night of naught, which, mm-hmm. I mean, literally would mean something like night of nothingness. Right. Um, which is evocative of, you know, almost being in this, this black void. We've got never sight he saw of shining shore nor light he sought. We've got how he blindly fled from west to east. We've even got this word unheralded, which kind of suggests that he's, you know, not seen or not noticed. Um, Mm. All Mm -hmm. this, all this language that just basically shows him in the dark. Totally solitary, totally. Yeah. yeah, Never, never even seeing land. Yeah. In the dark and alone and wandering Mm. north to south, west to east. uh, Yeah. just. He's lost. Night of not, night of not. Right. It's this is really. You're right. This is definitely lost in the dark. No doubt about it. Mm-hmm. Which brings us though to stanza four, doesn't it? Kind of uh, like you said, contrasting with that, huh? Yeah, stanza four really directly contrasts with that. I call this stanza uh, light and direction. Or he's back on. I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I like light and direction. That's what I've got in my notes. But it's really light, and he's back on track. Yeah, because this shows Arendil met by Elwing, who brings him the mm-hmm. Silmaril. And right. then with this new light, they're able to get back on course and make their way into the West. Suddenly, they're not wandering anymore. They're going straight for the West. Right. And yes, it is Elwing who saves her man, not the other way around. I kind of <laughs> love that. Which we see sometimes, right? Little we Luthien and Baron, right? Yep, absolutely. And I kind of love that Tolkien puts that in there. Agreed. In the first few lines, we've got references to light with phrases like flame, in the darkness lit, uh, bright, light of diamond, the fire. Right. Her carcanet, I think we discussed this word in season one. Mm-hmm. This is so. an archaic word for an ornamental collar or necklace, usually of gold or set with jewels. I kind of a, think it came up when we were talking about uh, Thingol, Thingol right? and, the, and the Nauglamir. The Nauglamir, right. That's, I yeah. think that's the context, right? And then, of course, speaking of the Nauglamir, we see the Silmaril, the living light. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is exactly what he needs here to get to where he's going. And now he's mm-hmm. dauntless. He's, he's fearless. He's determined in his course. He's got a burning brow. He's, he's yep. ready to go now. Definitely has that direction yep. he talked about. He is, he is on course. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got this word, Tarmanel. 
Hammond yeah. and Skull point out that in Tolkien's Unfinished Index, he defines Tarmanel as high heaven, region of wind. Right. So that suggests that Manway himself might have blown this wind. Indeed. So now Arendel passes back. He's coming out of the darkness. He's got his light. He's passing from east to west. And so now we've got an inversion of the previous stanza. You're right. Absolutely, and, don't we? And to me, I almost, I feel like these two stanzas are very important because the, the push and pull that we get with mm-hmm. each stanza pair contrasting each other, I think it evokes the, the back and forth nature of Arendel's journey, which we've oh, just seen, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I think, that, I think the structure itself is symbolic of Arendel's journey. Indeed, except for maybe stanza five, right? Yeah, absolutely. Stanza five is a little different because it is the fifth stanza in a nine stanza poem. So it is the oh, one yeah, in the middle. Right. Exactly. And it is not part of a thematic pair. In fact, the way I see it, the fifth stanza is a thematic pair all on its own because mm. the first, not quite half, basically right. to the bottom of page 228 in our edition is full of references to sound images. And the mm. second little more than half, basically starting from the top of page 229, contains all these references to sights. Yeah. So those two contrast each other a little bit. True. Yeah, we start with the roaring waves. Mm-hmm. We start with, uh, we've got leagues unlit, which is not right. a sound image on its own, but it is a lack of sight. Oh, okay. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah, you're right. Then you get that he heard on Strands of Pearl, the music long. Mm-hmm. Of course, the shores of Pearl, where ends the world, that's the shores of Alcolonde. Right. Absolutely. And then we move into the second half of the stanza with the sights. So then suddenly he saw the mountain silent rise. Mm. So we've got a lack of sound now, as well as a right. vision of the mountain. Yeah. Of course, the mountain is Taniquetil. Or Taniquetil, depending on where you come from. <laughs> depending on where you come from. Boy, that's I a can't. sound I'd, I'd love to not hear again. Yeah, seriously. And, and I know one you'd love to not say again. Yeah. We've got, he beheld afar. Right. Eldemar. He escaped from night, so he now has light to see with. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we, get a, we get visual descriptions of a haven white, green and fair. We get pale as glass. Yeah. We get the hill of Ilmarin, I guess I should point out, is the mansion of the high airs. That's the dwelling of Manway. Right. And you get this a glimmer and the lamplit towers mm-hmm. uh, and it mirrored on the shadow mirror, which by, its, by the definition of that word, that's a shadowy lake. So, yeah. 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 Pretty amazing stuff. And, and I'm even... I'm even realizing that since we're we're ending this stanza on the hill of Ilmarin, remember that mm-hmm. since I said, like I said, that's where Manway lived. Right. I mean, what do we know about Manway? He sees. Yeah. With Varda farther next than to, anybody the, else, with, right? Right. With Varda next to him, he can he can see farther than anyone anyone else. So, a lot of sight imagery in the second half of this stanza. Manway, what do your Valar eyes see? <laughs> <laughs> They're taking the hobbits. To They're Eisengard. taking the hero to Alqualondë. <laughs> All right. So what about stanzas six and seven? We didn't read these, but certainly people will and should, and we should discuss them. What do you got? Well, stanza six shows Arendel kind of taking a break, kind of resting from his long voyage. And uh, tarried, yeah, you're right. Yeah, he's harried from Arendry. He's And he stops. He, he gets a little bit of reward for his troubles. He gains some wisdom from the Eldar yeah. and the Valar. It is a little different from the story we get in the Silmarillion, in which Arendel still has quite a bit of work to do uh, after docking. But, you know, Bilbo <laughs> yeah, yeah. seems to be, here he's, he's showing Arendel getting a partial reward for his labors, mm-hmm. getting this wisdom, getting to, to see these things that nobody else is seeing, hear these things that nobody else gets to hear. Right. And also, with this idea of him stopping from, you know, tarrying from Arendry, we get a lot of words in this passage that evoke stillness mm. in a sense of a lack of motion, just not 
not moving anymore, not not on the sea anymore. Yeah. But also in the sense of timelessness. We're going to see mm. quite a bit of that, mm-hmm. especially later in the stanza. Yeah. So yeah, like right. you said, we start off with how he he tarried from Errantry, which is not mm-hmm. only him resting for a bit, but it's also a nod to the original poem, which I kind of like. Boy, it is, isn't it? Yeah. And then he's taught things and he's brought things, right? And harps mm-hmm. and clothes and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like little rewards for, for having come yeah. this far. Kind of like the rewards for the quest. Right. And then he's taken loot. to the timeless halls. Loot. 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 <laughs> and then he's taken to the timeless halls. Now, this is interesting because the timeless oh, halls yeah. in the Silmarillion are not where Manway lives. The timeless halls are actually beyond creation where right, Iluvatar right. lives. So this is probably a little bit of poetic license by Bilbo. But Fair enough. still, what we see here is we, we see this idea of, of Manway um, and sort of the timelessness of his reign, right? Yeah, that works. I mean, he has a, an endless reign, lasts countless years, mm-hmm. so that fits. And then he hears words unheard by men and elves, and he's even shown visions that had previously been forbidden to others. So in a way, he's rewarded. He's sort of ascended to a higher existence. I, frankly, Eärendil has leveled up. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Don't give me toys, man. Nicely done. Thank you. Man, I, lo- I love that. I love the console. <laughs> There's just so much power in that console. There is power here. Yes, much power. Anyway. So then we move on to stanza seven. Now, stanza right, right. seven inverts the stillness and the resting of the previous stanza mm-hmm. by describing a little bit of motion. Really, what this is about is Arendel starting a new journey. He's, he's yeah. finished his previous journey. He's rested. He's been rewarded. He's leveled up. <laughs> Don't say it. I knew you were going to do that. That's why. (laughs) That's why I I took a break. Um, And he's ready to start a new journey. And as we're going to see, this journey is going to be a little bit longer term. Yeah, just a little bit. Just a little bit. So we saw lots of images of stillness and timelessness in the previous stanza. Here we're going to see some images of motion, and we're also going to see some images of time going on forever. Time keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking. Oh man, into the future. You brought Steve Which Miller is perfect because that's Fly Like an Eagle. Yeah. Which, I mean, this that's an absolutely perfect song now that I think it about it. It absolutely is. It absolutely <laughs> is. That literally just came to me. I know sometimes well we, done. we'll like look at the episode and go, oh, this would be a perfect time. No, not, not when it comes to the music. That's, no, that was, that was pure Sisto right there. That, that, was, was. that was good stuff. Oh, well, only if it was in tune, man. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So we see uh, he's got some fancy new divine propulsion system. No oh, shaven yeah. ore nor sail. Pretty impressive stuff. Quite impressive. I think it's the beryllium sphere. It was Galaxy <laughs> Quest, wasn't it? Yes, that was Galaxy was, Quest. Yeah. Yeah. The beryllium awesome. sphere is broken. The beryllium yeah. sphere is broken. <laughs> I have one job on this ship. <laughs> anyway. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it, okay? That's right. That's right. We get the living flame of the Silmaril. Mm-hmm. which is similar to it being described as a living light in the forest. Right, stanza. I was thinking that's the one, yeah, we saw earlier. Mm-hmm. But it also, it describes a light that's alive and animated. It's not still. Right, exactly. By the way, I, I think we need to pause and just consider how significant it is that Elbereth herself, Varda, gives Eärendil the Silmaril, or yeah, gives it back to absolutely. him. absolutely, that's right. And I think that's because he's pure of heart. He knows that it's not his. He's right. just borrowing it to go on this sacred mission from the Valar. So absolutely, that's really neat. We get more words of timelessness and endlessness, but notice now that we're talking about his undying doom. We're talking about his wings immortal. So this is, Mm. this is like perpetual motion. This is not like a static 
piece, a timeless piece that we see in the yeah, previous right. stanza. This is this is on the go, perpetual yeah. motion. It's it's absolutely the opposite of static piece. It's piece, but it's mm-hmm. continually moving. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then we get that he's going to sail the skies. He's going to mm-hmm. come behind the sun and the moon. And there you go, folks. We have liftoff. Come sail away. Come sail away. <laughs> Come sail. Man. Sorry. I was just on a fire tonight, no, man. No, because dude, this this is I'm writing every one of these down and I am making the ultimate air endo playlist right now. <laughs> so this is good. Keep it coming. Oh, good stuff. We have liftoff. You could probably do uh, the launch from Boston on that one. Uh, since that's an instrumental, I can't sing it. There you go. Anyway. Space Oddity, David Bowie. There you go. There you go. Uh so stanza eight now. Now we're getting to uh back into what we read here at the end. From Ever Even's Lofty Hills. Yeah. Yeah. So this stance is going to show Arendel returning to Middle Earth. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sort of the, the hero's triumphant return moment. Right. Or the so triumphant return seems. where he waves and keeps on going. But yes. <laughs> exactly. It's still exactly. His triumphant yeah. Return. yeah. Exactly. It seems like he's going to return. It seems like he's going to co- get to I go know. back. I know. It really does. You mentioned Ever Even. Yeah. We don't know exactly where this is, but it is mentioned. Uh, in one of Galadriel's songs later on. And so we do know that it's somewhere in Eldamar. Mm-hmm. That's right. We get that Eärendil is now a wandering light. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is coincidence or not, but that is more or less exactly what the etymology of the name Eärendil is in Old English. Remember Ozzy oh, Wandelas? Yeah. Right, right. So, I, again, I don't know if Tolkien was thinking of that or if I'm just reading too much into it, but that's what I'm doing. That never man. happens around here, Sean. You never, never, too much never at things. all. Never at all. How long have we been talking about this poem now? A long time. Uh, <laughs> we get we get that he yearned to find his uh-huh. home. I'm going to skip a few words there. Of course. But this guy, he's ready to go home, man. Oh, he's, yeah. He's had this Remember, he went on a journey first. It was a very long journey that uh-huh. failed. Turned around and yeah. was coming back when, oh, no, I'm sorry. You can't go home and freshen up and repack. You got to turn around at the <laughs> right, airport exactly. and get back on an airplane. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He's really, he's been on the road a long time. He's ready for a break. He deserves a break, but he ain't going to get one. No, he's not. Very sadly. I mean, not sadly, but yeah, kind of. You know, I mean, this is a sacrifice. It's, I think it is. I think it is yeah. sad for him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, we get this inversion of the earlier image of him earthbound beneath the moon and under star. Now he's a distant flame before the sun. It's Eärendil as Venus, the morning star that mm-hmm. rises before the sun in the east. Man. Yep. Mm. Not earthbound anymore. He's up no. there in the sky. Yes, he is. And then we get stanza nine, where mm-hmm. it, it finally becomes very clear that yeah, he is yeah. never going to be able to return back to the Middle Earth that he loves. So that's that's how this one contrasts with the previous stanza. Sure um, does. I think when you look at these two stanzas together, this stanza really underscores Arendel's sacrifice. You know, yeah. this is where it's, it's, it's really clear that, you know, he's on this errand to bring hope to the world, but it's it's unending. It's mm-hmm. he's not. He's not, he's not ever going to be done with this errand until, I no. guess, the end of the world. That's, and it is an important right. errand, actually. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a it's crucial a really errand. Important errand. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you realize just what the rising of that star did for those still in Middle Earth when he mm-hmm. first showed up. It's absolutely yeah. crucial. Uh, he flies overhead. He hears the weeping sore of women and of elven maids. He would like nothing more than to comfort them. I mean, to some extent, Elwing looked the other way. Um, but he can't. You know, all he can... <laughs> Oh, you, you cast aspersions on Arendel like that. I, I know you're going to get me for that one. All, all I could do is, is fly over them and hope that they see him as a sign that the Valar are listening. This is Estel, not Amdir. That's right. And he is Gil Estel, the star of hope. That is correct. 
we see that on him mighty doom was laid. This is similar to uh, the phrase undying doom that we got in oh, yeah, Stanza yeah. 7. That's right. We get that he is going to be doing this till moon should fade. Wow, pretty, pretty darn, darn close to forever. Time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not forever forever, but it's pretty close. I guess not. It's forever that matters, I suppose. Yeah. For, forever for the earth, you know? Right. And he will tarry nevermore. There, there's oh. there's oh. no no breaks for him. I mean, None. I do think, and we're going to get into this a little later, I do yeah, think that I think he so. does. I think he gets breaks to hang out with Elwing for a little bit in Valinor. But he never gets well, to actually, tarry on hither shores where mortals are. Which is that's really correct. the second half that's, of that line. That's right. true. And that's really what the poem says, isn't it? You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're right. So he never, he never is going to get to come back to Middle Earth and stay there. Mm. Man, that's, that's, that is hard. And why is that? Well, it's because he's a herald on an errand that should never rest, just in case you haven't figured that out yet. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and then is this really get, forever? I think it's forever. I think it's forever. Really forever? Yeah, forever, dude. <laughs> the Flammifer of Westerness, the conclusion of the poem. There we go. Uh, I love that. And of course, we talked about that earlier in the episode in the uh, philology mm-hmm. fair segment. That really cool word. Great stuff. That was a long discussion of a few <laughs> pages of text. I think it's still faster than what Corey Olson would have done. I, th- I think he's oh, probably yeah. doing four I, episodes on the song I think itself. On, ju- on just the poem. Yeah. And he'll yeah, be joining us, us uh, for, for our next episode. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. So looking forward to that. I it's know. Me great. too. So in the meantime, Sean, I'm going to have you pick up right after the poem ends. Okay. The chanting ceased. Frodo opened his eyes and saw that Bilbo was seated on his stool in a circle of listeners, who were smiling and applauding. Now we had better have it again, said an elf. Bilbo got up and bowed. I am flattered, Lindir, he said, but it would be too tiring to repeat it all. Not too tiring for you, the elves answered laughing. (laughs) You know you are never tired of reciting your own verses. But really, we cannot answer your question at one hearing. What? cried Bilbo. You can't tell which parts were mine and which were the Dunedans? It is not easy for us to tell the difference between two mortals, said the elf. Nonsense, Lindir, snorted Bilbo. If you can't distinguish between a man and a hobbit, your judgment is poorer than I imagined. They're as different as peas and apples. Ew, don't eat those at the same time. Sorry, Maybe just... <laughs> to sheep, other sheep no doubt appear different, laughed Lindir. <laughs> or to shepherds, but mortals have not been our study. We have other business. Apparently. <laughs> I mean, wow. this seems so condescending. Typical elf, right? You th- yeah, a little condescending. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Aragorn's like literally twice the height of Bilbo. And if you <laughs> and, and very can't different. Tell the difference He's between... <laughs> 87 yeah. years old and has been all around the world and. Anyway, well, Bilbo's yeah. been around the world too now. He's he's a bit of a traveler. Well, that that's true, but they don't look alike. And I mean, come on, no. would would Aragorn write a poem like that? No, with all the twists and turns and metrical hijinks, I think he would write something very high and dignified. And mm-hmm. he probably would have written that alliterative lay of Arendel that never got finished. Oh yeah, that's a very good point. Maybe that's why it never got finished because he was too busy hanging out with Arwen whenever he was at Rivendell. There you go. He just didn't get his work done. There you go. So. But he does see it as a success because he got a request for a second hearing. So, you know, that's a win. Yeah. And that's actually where I'm going to pick up is when Bilbo's talking to Frodo. He asks him, what did you think of it? I'm not going to try and guess, said Frodo, smiling. You needn't, said Bilbo. As a matter of fact, it was all mine, except that Aragorn insisted on my putting in a green stone. He seemed to think it important. I don't know why. Otherwise, he obviously thought the whole thing rather above my head. And he said that if I had the cheek to make verses about Arendelle and the House of Elrond, it was my affair. I suppose he was right. I don't know, said Frodo. 
It seemed to me to fit somehow, though I can't explain. I was half asleep when you began, and it seemed to follow on from something that I was dreaming about. I didn't understand that it was really you speaking until near the end. It is difficult to keep awake here until you get used to it, said Bilbo. Not that hobbits would ever acquire quite the elvish appetite for music and poetry and tales. They seem to like them as much as food or more, which must be a shock to a hobbit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I How mean, can you like anything like as anything much as food? Anything more than food, right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, now I think we know this was the Elisar, the green stone on the breast of Aragorn. Yeah, mm -hmm. has to be. If, 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 if Aragorn insisted on him putting it in, it's got to yeah. be. Absolutely. We get the wonderful line from, you know, <laughs> from Bilbo about Strider saying he had the cheek to do this. Yes. I kind of love, love that, that line. Mm -hmm. And this is one that, you know, you, you, you may not catch on a first read, maybe even right. a second read. But then you realize, oh, the reason that this is cheeky is because Arendel is Elrond's dad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, here I am. I'm going to sing a song about your father and his exploits. Yeah. In your house. Which I wasn't there for. Right. And you have heard all about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and hat tip to, to Zach T for asking us to make sure we, we talked about this. He thought maybe too many people brushed past this part of the story. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, Zach, you know, we're not going to let that go by. But uh, no. But there you go. Yeah. I mean, that is exactly why this is a cheeky thing to do. Yes, it is. And then, of course, you get Bilbo's explanation about how it's hard to stay awake here. Very, very elvish. Uh, it's all about that enchantment. It made me think a little bit of the uh, river in Mirkwood and how, you know, made mm. you fall asleep. Same sort of yeah. enchantment. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. So sleep being a, a big key thing there, at least I think for mortals. I don't think elves get sleepy. It would be my suspicion. No, I suspect uh, but, they can, they can stay up all night listening to this stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree. We just fall under the spell. Mortals do. Mm -hmm. Much more easily. Uh, and then, of course, they decide to head out to talk amongst themselves. For the next little song, and this one's a much shorter song, we have a, a guest reader today. And even as I stepped over the threshold, a single, clear, elvish voice rose in song. Ar elbereth gilthoniel, silevrin penamiriel, o menel aglar elenath. Nachhaired palandiriel agalat remmin enorath, anuilos lelinavon nevaya si nevayaron. I never get tired of hearing him read. I like that guy. We should have him on more often. We should have him. I'd like to get him as a guest on the show. I don't think he'll be available. Once we get that time machine. Boy, you're not kidding. I still then suspect he wouldn't be available. As much <laughs> as we love him, I don't know that the feeling would be mutual. <laughs> we, we might. A little disrespectful might, sometimes. Maybe a little bit. It's not disrespectful. It's just no. fun. We have fun. He had a, he had a good sense of humor. Yes, he did. I That's think true. He, I, I think he liked, I'd like to think, I think he would have liked us. Yes. I think he would have appreciated the, the silliness. I hope so. But yeah, that's the, that's the hymn to Elbereth. Ah, Elbereth Gilthoniel. And there's a literal yeah. translation. It's, O Elbereth who lit the stars from glittering crystal, slanting falls with light like jewels from heaven on high, the glory of the starry host to lands remote. I have looked afar from tree tangled middle lands. And now to thee, Fenuilos. Bright spirit, clothed in ever white, I here will sing beyond the sea, beyond the wide and sundering sea. Mm. That's beautiful. Remind Isn't me, that, where does that translation come from? Is that the one from The Road Goes Ever On? I believe so. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's The Road Goes Ever On. There are a couple because of different. In, yeah. Yeah. There, yeah Appendix there are E a couple, has a different one, isn't there? Appendix E has a translation of one line. The line, O Galadremenenorath, is translated right. as tree woven lands of Middle Earth in Appendix right. E. But that's the only line that's translated in Lord of the Rings. Exactly. And I just pulled the entire one from The Road Goes Ever On. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Yeah, it's great. It's really cool. It really is. We got a almost translation in chapter three, book one. Right, right. But but that was not really a translation. That was just sort of what the hobbits heard because they're they were listening to uh, that's right. They, that was when they were hearing that effect of that of that elvish song. But that was a good discussion. I think it's actually worth revisiting a little bit. It was in episode one hundred and five, wasn't it? Uh, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, that was. Uh, it was really the first time we saw a reference to Elbereth in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we did. Uh, we looked up uh, some stuff on the road goes ever on, and we found some real gems there. Right about the the collaboration between Tolkien and Donald Swan, mm-hmm. and we pointed out that Tolkien says Elbereth was the usual name in Sindarin of the Vala called in Quenya Varda, the Exalted. It is more or less the equivalent of Quenya Elentari, Star Queen. But Bereth actually meant spouse, and was used of one who is queen as spouse of a king. Mm. Then Tolkien goes on to tell us about one of the titles that she has, Fenuelas, which is mentioned in this hymn. Now, right. in other places, that title is rendered Snow White. But yeah. Tolkien says that this is very inadequate. Fauna is an elvish element, with primary meaning veil. The Sindarin form Fawn was usually applied to clouds, floating as veils over the blue sky or the sun or moon or resting on hills. But of course, Tolkien has more for us. He goes on to say that in Quenya, however, the simple word Fauna acquired a special sense. Owing to the close association of the high elves with the Valar, it was applied to the veils or raiment in which the Valar presented themselves to physical eyes. These were the bodies in which they were self-incarnated. Now, in these Fanar, right, so it's the R at the end makes it plural. In these Fanar, yep. they later presented themselves to the elves and appeared as persons of majestic but not gigantic stature, vested in robes expressing their individual natures and functions. The high elves stated that these forms were always, in some degree, radiant, as if suffused with a light from within. In Quenya, Fana thus came to signify the radiant and majestic figure of one of the great Valar. In Sindarin, especially as used by the High Elves, the originally identical word fan or cloud, was also given that same sense. Fan uilos, then, in full, signified bright angelic figure, ever white as snow, which is a I lot richer that. than snow white, plus there's no implication of dwarves anywhere around. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Big plus. <laughs> if it was Aule, we would expect to find seven dwarves around him, but- There you go. Not Varda. No. Yeah, no, that's a great quote, and I'm glad you brought it in. Yeah. I mean, I know we talked about it 36 episodes ago, but I think it was <laughs> yeah, worth mentioning still, again. Yeah. yeah it's good stuff. Cool. All right. So you're going to pick up right after that into a really important moment. Okay. Frodo halted for a moment, looking back. Elrond was in his chair, and the fire was on his face like summer light upon the trees. Near him sat the Lady Arwen. To his surprise, Frodo saw that Aragorn stood beside her. His dark cloak was thrown back, and he seemed to be clad in elven mail, and a star shone on his breast. Mm. They spoke together, and then suddenly it seemed to Frodo that Arwen turned towards him, and the light of her eyes fell on him from afar and pierced his heart. He stood still, enchanted, while the sweet syllables of the elvish song fell like clear jewels of blended word and melody. It is a song to Elbereth, said Bilbo. They will sing that and other songs of the Blessed Realm many times tonight. Come on. In other words, let's go. We, I've seen her before. Yeah, we, yeah <laughs> we, don't, we don't need to hear this. We don't need to see this. Yeah, if we Nothing want to, to we can come here. back and they'll keep singing songs like this. Yeah. But boy, that moment of, of Arwen looking at Frodo and the light of her that, eyes pierced his heart. What a moment. That's kind of a heartbreaking moment. It's it just, is. In the best way. I mean, it's just yeah, like yeah, yeah. The, the beauty that he beholds here. You know? Incredible. 
Now, uh, Hammond and Skull reference an interview that Tolkien gave to uh, a Daphne Castell of New Worlds in 1966, talking about this moment with, with uh, Aragorn and Arwen. He said that even in a time of a great war and high adventure, there's still this romantic element. He goes on to point out that there's surely enough given in flashes for an attentive reader to see, even without the appendix of Aragorn and Arwen. The whole tale is one aspect of the love story of this pair and the achievement of a high, noble, and romantic love. Tolkien goes on to say, You get the scene in Rivendell, with Aragorn suddenly revealed in princely dignity to Frodo, standing by Arwen. There's Aragorn's vision, after he had plighted his troth to Arwen and left her. And what were his thoughts after receiving the furled standard, or when he unfurled it, after achieving uh, the paths of the dead? That's right. Yeah, there really are so enough, yeah. uh, enough moments given in flashes for an attentive reader to see. But Yeah, definitely. The appendix does help. <laughs> it does. It, it, put, it puts all the pieces together. It gives you the complete picture. But yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. if you're reading closely, you can pick up on it in, this, right. in the narrative itself. But Bilbo already knows, and he's not really interested in explaining any of that to Frodo. He drags him back to his room, and they get to, to talk. But they're not even talking now about the Shire. They're talking about all the things they've seen in the world together, of the elves and of the stars and of the trees. And I love yeah. that moment. Yeah. It's really, Do you think really there's a little, a little more recovery here? Maybe a little, I uh, think so. you know, recovering a clear view of the world, yeah. maybe, uh, maybe even just like escaping from, mm -hmm. you know, the threats of the world beyond and a little consolation oh, for, you know, just the consolation of being together. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get uh, Sam's arrival and I'm going to go ahead and finish up the chapter. Okay. At last there came a knock on the door. Begging your pardon, said Sam, putting in his head, but I was just wondering if you'd be wanting anything. And begging yours, Sam Kamji, replied Bilbo. I guess you mean that it is time your master went to bed. Well, sir, there is a council early tomorrow, I hear, and he only got up today for the first time. <laughs> Quite right, Sam, laughed Bilbo. <laughs> you can trot off and tell Gandalf that he's gone to bed. Good night, Frodo. Bless me, but it has been good to see you again. There are no folk like hobbits, after all, for a real good talk. I am getting very old, and I begin to wonder if I should live to see your chapters of our story. Good night. I'll take a walk, I think. And look at the stars of Elbereth in the garden. Sleep well. <laughs> stars of Elbereth in the garden. I want to go for a I walk. I love that because, yeah. <laughs> I really, I love that's that. just beautiful. One, one reason why I love that is because, remember, what's the first thing Bilbo noticed the first time he rode into Rivendell in The Hobbit? Mm, that is the right. Stars. The stars. Yeah. I mean, right before, before the, the smell. smell. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. 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 But he you looked up and there. he saw the stars. And, and, and we see that, you know, he loves the stars in Rivendell. And, you know. Yeah. Who I would imagine the stars would be beautiful in Rivendell because, you know, the Lord of Rivendell's dad is one of them. So. <laughs> Boy, that is so true. Oh, my goodness. Nice, nice little way my to My father's that a up. planet. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> What's your dad do? Yeah. Can you see Elrond is a <laughs> My little daddy kid. could beat up your daddy. That's right, because he's a planet. Oh, yeah. 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 My dad's, a, my dad's a dragon. Oh, yeah. My dad's a planet. Yeah. My dad slayed the biggest dragon ever. <laughs> right, <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Still not as big as the stories say. <laughs> That's right. Still not as big. That's right. He may have cracked the mountains asunder. That doesn't mean he was literally bigger than them, folks. Right. Despite any graphics you may see on the internet. Don't believe it nope. just because it's on the internet, people. Don't, anyway. Don't. Don't even then again, we're on the us. internet. We're on the internet. That's true. <laughs> right. Well, we back things up, man. All right. Well, folks, that might wrap up our discussion of mini meetings, but we are not done yet. We've got Bartleman's bag coming your way here in just a minute. And of course, when that's done, the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our common room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode. 
as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. And now we have another common room, this time on Reddit. You can find great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle at prancingponypod. Follow us wherever you might be. And if you like us, please only if you like us, share us on Facebook, Twitter, (laughs) Reddit, or anywhere else you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, again, especially if you like us, give us a review on iTunes. Yes, we want good feelings. That's right. Give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more visible the podcast is. That helps others find us and find this great community of Tolkien fans we put together. And finally, if you'd like access to some really cool exclusive content like postscripts, quarterly specials, PPP swag, and more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can join the fellowship of the podcast. We are well past our most recent goal of setting up a monthly Discord hangout, which you can join if you're a Patreon supporter at the Gift of Gondor tier or higher. Mm -hmm. And we're making really great progress on our way to our next big goal of doing two moots every year because, Mm -hmm. frankly, we just have a whole lot of fun at them. Boy, we sure do. But we can't get there without your help. And we've got a lot of cool bonus content and gifts to make it worth your while, including a chance to join our Discord server when you can get to hang out with us once a month or even listen in live once a month while we record an episode. So if you're interested in joining, or if you'd just like to see how we're doing on our goals, visit patreon.com slash prancingponypod. Now, I think it's time to see what old Barman has in the mailbag for us. Sean. Okay, well, first up, we've got a question from Andrew W., and I alluded to this question a little earlier. Andrew asks, does Ea Rendil always sail the skies? That is, is he perpetually up there guarding the borders of Ea, or does he live in Valinor and set sail daily? The immediate explanation for the Evening Star's appearance is, of course, that he's returning to Haven, so to speak. But this doesn't explain quite everything. Elwing learns flight from the birds so as to be able to rendezvous with him upon his return. But that would seem unnecessary if he ever actually docked and disembarked. Mm -hmm. It seems more appropriate from a legend or fate perspective, as well as the practical Morgoth patrol perspective, that he'd always (laughs) be up there. But also a bit sad, and I've never found a straightforward answer on any forum or in the texts. It would be a bit sad, wouldn't it? We know that, according to Chapter 24 of the Silmarillion, Elwing chose to be judged among the firstborn children of Iluvatar because of Luthien, and for her sake, Eärendil chose alike, though right. his heart was rather with the kindred of men than the people of his father. So it would be quite tragic and rather unfair if you made that choice to be with Elwing and then never got to spend the time with her because he's always up in the sky. I totally agree. I think that, I think that would be sad. And yeah. I don't think he always is up in the sky. I think he actually lives in Valinor and sets sail, maybe for more than a day sometimes. I don't know. I'm not an astronomer, so I, I, don't, oh, really yeah, know. Yeah. I don't really know the courses of Venus well enough to, to know all that. But the text of the Silmarillion, chapter 24, also says, Most often was he seen at morning or at evening, glimmering in sunrise or sunset, as he came back to Valinor from voyages beyond the confines of the world. On those journeys Elwing did not go, for she might not endure the cold and the pathless voids. Yeah, the vacuum will do that be- to you. I mean, you know, her eyeballs just pop right out and yeah, that's know, not blood a, boils. Not, not, and, a, yeah. not a good sight. You don't no. want to see that happen to a bird. Nope. No. And she loved rather the earth and the sweet winds that blow on sea and hill. Therefore, there was built for her a white tower northward upon the borders of the sundering seas, and thither at times all the seabirds of the earth repaired. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here. And mm-hmm. at times when Eärendil returning drew near again to Arda, she would fly to meet him even as she had flown long ago, when she was rescued from the sea. Then the far-sighted among the elves that dwelt in the lonely isle would see her like a white bird, shining 
rose-stained in the sunset as she soared in joy to greet the coming of Vingalot to Haven. Mm. Now, to me, the text is clearly saying that Eärendil does return home at times. I, again, I don't know everything about how Venus moves, but I know it's not always visible in the sky, either as the morning okay. star or the evening star. So I'll I think have to take your word when, on that. It's yeah, when and I think what Tolkien is saying is when Venus is not in the sky, that's probably when Eärendil is docked. That makes sense. I think I think Elwing is actually flying up to meet him, just to greet him. I mean, the the way you might do, I don't know, if you might have to go to the docks or. I guess these days, drive to the airport, you know, to mm. greet your spouse who's just come back from a long voyage. I don't think that's strange at <laughs> okay. all that she would go no. to meet him. True. I mean, I guess one big difference is that Elwing doesn't have to park the car and wait in the cell phone lot. What gate good. are you at again? I, I just drove by. I didn't see you. I guess I'll have to loop around again. <laughs> Man, how many times exactly. does that happen? Yeah. Anyway, with all the singing that we've seen in this part of the chapter, it seems appropriate to have at least one question about music here today. So Alan T. wrote into us to ask, I'm interested in the titles of the music used on the podcast and perhaps some of the reasons you chose the pieces that you did. Oh, that is a great question, Alan T. Uh, and I have to say, this is a really common question that we get in our mailbox uh -huh. a lot. So Man. I'm glad we have a chance to answer it here on the show. Yeah. Well, Sean and I knew from the very beginning, uh, before we even started the podcast, that we wanted to have music for our intro and outro, mm -hmm. as well as any recurring segments that we opted to do. And we wanted the music to have a Middle-earthy feel specifically sort of a Shire Brie-ish feel, right? I mean, even though we were starting with the Silmarillion, we wanted to keep true to the theme of the Prancing Pony. So yeah, I shopped sure. around online. Uh, you know, I wanted to find something, obviously, that we could just buy royalty-free. Uh, and we ended up using a, a Celtic album that was available from a website that's no longer around called jewelbeat.com. I don't really know where you'd be able to buy this now, but the album that we had or bought had, uh, I don't know, eight to 10 tracks on it. And it's been the source of just about all of the music that we've used for our segments as well as for our intro and outro music. Now, mm -hmm. the famous opening music is a track called Fiddle Diddle, and the closing music track is called Blowing Over the Hills. Uh, the music for Philology Fair, which you heard earlier. Oh, that's my favorite. Oh, yeah, I know that. Uh, it's called Hillside <laughs> Dance, but of course, you only get to that's hear right. a stinger instead of the you know two-minute version. And, you know, we've got right. a list of all of them, and if anybody's really particularly interested, shoot us an email, we'll, we'll let you know. But Honestly, yeah. I'm not sure if the music can be found anywhere anymore. We have had to source new music and sound effects from a new royalty-free source, but we're glad we found what we did when we did, uh, and that it seems to have resonated with our listeners. So, yeah. Yeah. Get a, we get a lot of questions about it. People like it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, that does wrap it up for this episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Please be sure to join us again next week when the Tolkien professor himself, Corey Olson, will join us as we start our five-episode marathon for the Council of Elrond. <laughs> I can't wait for that, and we're going to have our own council for that, at least to start. <laughs> Indeed we will. And folks, we want to thank all of you for listening, and we also want to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Keardance Contribution Tier. That's Demay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamsin in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, and Mario in Utah. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, and most of all, your songs to Elbereth to Barlamin at theprancingponypodcast.com. Barlamin is not always punctual with the mail, you should know that, but well, we'll yeah. get back to you as soon as we can, and mm -hmm. your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Well, folks, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time, farewell, friends. 